Hey guys, I'm Coach Christy. Today I'm going to share with you some um, insights on my personal background that have led me to believe a few things. And um, if you're on board, great. If you're not, that's okay too. Uh, so today's topic is going to be about our electromagnetic field or our EMF, our emotional and mental frequency. This part of it is real. That is factual. That's science. It has been studied um, with empirical science, not qualitative anything. It's measurable. We use um, a functional MRI to be able to tell what parts of our brain light up and how they light up depending on what we're thinking and feeling. There are other, um, you know, uh, uh, scientific tools that we use to measure the EMF that comes from our heart and that comes from our brain and comes from our gut. Those are all, um, you know, centers for electromagnetic fields in our body. And um, we have really strong evidence to um, believe that we emit a different electrical, electromagnetic field or a, a different frequency depending on our um, mental and emotional state, right, and overall vibe. And so that's science, that's real, but I'm going to give you a little history on my personal story and um, and then relate that to horsemanship here in a couple minutes. But so I grew up with a couple of different male figures that had little ability to process frustration, <laughs> Through frustration, and I don't really know what the source of their frustration was. Um, I could make up all kinds of stuff about that. But um, but when they got frustrated, they would get violent, right? It would start with little things, and it would grow into physical violence. My dad, um, some of the my earliest childhood memories were of my dad um, yelling, pushing, slapping, shoving, um, one of the, you know, mother figures in my life, my first stepmother, I remember very distinctly more than once running down the street to, with her holding my hand and my brother's hand to get to our aunt's house for sanctuary, right? To hit the reset button and try to figure out what to do or let, give dad time to cool off or whatever. Um, and then, um, when I was 12 years old, I, did not care for the lifestyle that my father was providing, which mostly meant like bouncing around from a lot of different schools because he didn't know what he wanted for himself and would often, um, you know, go outside of the, the bounds of marriage. And before you know it, we're back, you know, looking for a different place to live. <clears throat> so at 12 years old, I asked him if I could go live with my Aunt Peggy. And the reason I wanted to go live with her was because she had taken care of me off and on, um, you know, throughout my childhood from birth until I, t until then, I would spend weekends at their house and, um, things like that. And it wasn't that, you know, everything at Aunt Peggy's house was, um, all sunshine and rainbows, but there were horses at Aunt Peggy's house. And Aunt Peggy always encouraged me to spend time with the horses and the horses were an escape for me. So, um, so at 12, I moved in with my Aunt Peggy and her family and, um, my uncle was also a man who, who had difficulty processing frustration. I witnessed my uncle close fist punch one of my cousins in the face, not his son, but, a, you know, a different, um, 
refugee, if you will, close fist punch him in the face out of frustration. Now, the kid was being wildly frustrating. Um, I, the whole context is, you know, a, 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 there was a gradual buildup to this happening. It wasn't like all of a sudden he just turned around and punched him in the face. But he was, you know, he was a kid. He was probably like 10 or 11 at the time. And my uncle's a grown man. He close fist punched him in the face, right? There were many, many events in that household that had screaming and yelling and running and pushing and slapping and, and all of those things. And very rarely did any of those events, events, either with my dad or my uncle, involve me. And here's why. The reason I never got into those situations, I shouldn't say never, I rarely got, um, you know, wrapped up in those situations is I developed a coping mechanism that allowed me to see it coming well in advance, right? I could walk into a room and sense that some bad stuff was about to go down, right? That there was tension or, um, you know, the pot was about to boil, something like that. I could feel it and I would just find a reason to not be there, a legitimate reason. I didn't just like run away. But the cool thing about Aunt Peggy's, which I think, you know, really drew me into that scenario was that it was always acceptable to go do stuff with the horses. At any time, if I felt like I felt unsafe in the situation, I would just announce that I was going to go brush my horse or ride my horse or feed the horses something, right? <clears throat> so, um, and, and that that uh, sensory perception, you know, um, continued to be developed throughout my life. I, you know, at the age of 13, I moved in with my mom who I just met and she was married to a man who was also physically abusive, all right? So that lots of reinforcing that it's important for my well-being, for my safety to be sensitive to the mood of, of the people around me. So that sensitivity... It's not a superpower, right? I don't call myself an empath or anything like that. I don't have any magical powers. What I have is a coping mechanism, okay? So um, I still have that sensitivity. I'm often um, more sensitive to people's emotions than they are to their own. And that's really um, a difficult spot to be in. But um, so... Here's how this relates to horses and my horsemanship journey, all right? In 2005, when I was um, desperately seeking an opportunity, the pathway to becoming a Pirelli professional, I was in a course, um, tr you know, trying to uh, develop my horsemanship to a high enough level that I could even be considered um, for the professional's pathway. And I had read in one of Pat's theory books that it was important for us to be careful of our thoughts. And, um, you know, this is a, a, a new thing to me at the time. I was 30 years old. I hadn't really thought about what I was thinking about, right? I, had, I didn't have the self-awareness yet to pay attention to that, that I can be aware of my thoughts, right? Like, thoughts just happen. I felt like that was just... Um, um, something I didn't have any control over. So, or, or even just awareness of, right? It's just thoughts came and went and that was all there was to it. So, um, I, 
read this passage in Pat's theory book about be careful of your thoughts, right? Be careful of your thoughts because your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your character and your character become your destiny. So be careful of your thoughts, right? So I go after um, reading this and have this session with my horse where I was being very direct line. And so not at all preparing her for the thing I was asking her to do, biting off way too big of a chunk and then making her wrong for not understanding what I meant. So luckily I have a horse. She's still with me, my best girl ever, Maxie. Um, she's the kind of horse that's going to like fight back, right? She's not going to be um, uh, bullied or or you know, have someone else's will imposed upon her. You have to, you know, sort of negotiate that with her. And this is, you know, way too early on in my horsemanship for me to realize that. So we had this huge argument, all right? There was sweat and and frustration on both sides. And um, all the while, this this theme in my head is rattling around in there. Be careful of your thoughts. Be careful of your thoughts. Be careful of your thoughts. And sort of like a crazy person, I stopped. I was playing with her by myself because it was on a weekend, so at least it wasn't during a class that this craziness happened. But um, finally, I stop her, and I stop myself, like, like try to interrupt the pattern a little bit, and I say out loud, fine, what are my thoughts? And what I realized was I had this huge chip on my shoulder, this huge um, bag of resentment towards my parents, all of them, towards my mom, towards my dad, toward even towards Aunt Peggy and Uncle Junior, like, they sucked, <laughs> you know, they, they um, you know, did a shitty job, I got robbed in my childhood, I had to grow up way too soon, I spent w- way too much of my childhood um, feeling unsafe, feeling unloved, feeling unwanted, and um, that sucked, it made me a hard person, I was very angry and um, defensive and difficult to be around, I'm sure. Uh, (laughs) But uh, so that was my first little like slap in the face around, hey, you got to get a handle on this or this dream you have to be amazing with horses is not going to happen. So that was the beginning of the journey around paying attention to my thoughts and having some awareness around my EMF or my frequency, okay? Fast forward several years, I get to sit in on a lecture um, by a man named David Uloa. I highly recommend you look him up. He's a super cool dude. But David Uloa is a shark behavioralist. I know, right? It's weird. (laughs) Uh, You know, you don't consider like behavioralism around sharks, but he's passionate about sharks. He's kind of you know, he's often referred to as the shark whisperer because he has such a strong understanding around sharks and shark behavior that he can have, you know, unprotected interactions with even the most dangerous sharks because he understands how their their mind works and how to interact with them in a way that does not, um, you know, tell them that he should be a meal. And so he's giving this lecture and he's talking about that, right? He's talked. He was talking about how Sharks have been studied in such a way that we know that they have a sensory perception that is not sight or hearing or even sonar like some um, you know underwater uh, animals have. They they have a sensory perception for other animals' EMF, 
right? They're electromagnetic field. And that sharks are conservative hunters, actually, that when they do choose to, you know, pursue a meal, that they are looking for for that pursuit to have the least amount of chance of them being injured. So they'll go after the weak and the dying, right? So any animal that is emitting a stressed EMF um, is one that they're likely to go after, which is often probably why, you know, um, surfers and swimmers and stuff get misunderstood because we're exerting ourselves and that um, uh, prompts the part of our nervous system that um, is uh, indicative of fight or flight, right? That I'm in danger, so fight or flight. So there's the misunderstandings around sharks and surfers and whatnot, but um, he, David Uloa is also a, 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 a student of the horse. He loves horses. He studies the Pirelli program. And his experience he described to us with horses is very similar to what he's experienced with sharks. That having some awareness and deliberateness around what he's thinking and feeling is has an impact on the horse's ability to respond to him in, in a way that is pleasing, right? So that triggered the next little like level of me wanting to understand more about you know our electromagnetic field, our frequency, and what can I do about that, and how can I influence it, how can I use it more deliberately, and does that affect my horse? So here's where I will tell you that I don't have any scientific evidence. There's no empirical studies. This is just my personal experience, okay? It's one person's personal experience, but it's been my personal experience since childhood, all right? I've had essentially about 40 years of interactions with horses, and over those 40 years, if I were to, you know, pile up all of the data in that, like, um, the qualitative information, right? This is what I did and what happened. I would have hundreds of examples of my mood affecting a horse, both positive and negative. So um, here's a little bit of uh, um, information that I hope you find useful. And that is that there's a scale for our frequency. And I, I don't know the measure, the units that are used to measure our frequency when it comes to our emotional state, but um, the scale goes from zero to like a thousand, I think. And zero meaning death, right? The only thing that vibrates, the, the only things that vibrate at zero are dead. There's no energy in them. So um, zero is dead. <laughs> 200 is neutral, right? It's neither um, expanded or contracted are the words that are often used when describing our EMF. So expanded are emotions like love, joy, uh, you know, um, fascination. At the top is enlightenment, but I don't really know what that means. I don't have a grasp on that word or its meaning. But um, love vibrates somewhere around 500, and joy is even higher than that at 540. Frustrated is around 150, I believe, so it's below neutral, so it's contracted. Anger is right around there, but you don't know what's really surprising is some of the most um, the most contracted emotions are shame and guilt. I found that fascinating, and oftentimes the source of our contracted emotions are things that cause us to feel ashamed of ourselves 
or ashamed of the situation or feel guilty about the situation or ourselves. And here's my theory. And that's all it is. So take it with a grain of salt. My theory is that horses perceive us as predators when our frequency is in the contracted range. The more contracted we are, the more predatory we are. But they will pursue harmony with us if we can keep our frequency above 200. Without a frequency above 200, harmony is not possible. And for me, harmony is the goal. It's that holy grail that I'm always seeking and you know, have little glimpses at and little tastes of here and there. And more times than not, when my emotions are contracted, it is because I am thinking about myself. And those, those thoughts about myself have to do with judgment and comparison. The judgment often is, I'm not good enough. All right, I suck at this. What am I doing? Why, why do I keep trying so hard? I obviously am not going to get it. You know, all of those things. And that, listen, that is my ego monster's voice. That is not me. And that story got planted in my head in childhood by someone who wasn't me. And that someone was also in a contracted um, state of mind, right? It was probably multiple someones. I can't pinpoint it on any one particular individual. There are a couple that I have some pretty specific memories around that story, but we don't need to get into that. I'm not here to victimize anybody. So that judgment around I'm not good enough and then... Um, the comparison happens when I am um, assuming that everyone else is getting it better, getting it faster, doing it um, better than I am. So judgment and comparison are the sources often of the, the, the ego monster story that I'm telling myself that causes my frequency to become contracted. Now here's what you should know. I have an awareness around that now, but that doesn't mean I have that shit all figured out, <laughs> okay? It doesn't mean that I live above 200 on a regular basis all the time, or even that I feel that I should. I do think that contracted emotions serve a purpose, that they're pointers, they're directors, they're trying to tell us where to go. The same way that I use pressure to help my horse understand which way I want her to go. So... The process towards experiencing harmony and finding more and more moments of love and joy have to do with embracing the contracted emotions and understand that they're trying to tell me something. They're trying to give me information that will point me in the direction of harmony. And then being able to stay present and aware so that when I am on the pathway towards harmony, that I have the ability to appreciate that and feel feel the feelings of, of love and joy because of the struggle. Without the struggle, there wouldn't be any um, direction. But I also have to be just as ready to enjoy and be grateful for the harmony that shows up. So I don't have the strategies for you guys. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or have zero degrees and no letters and numbers after my name. All I have is 45 years of experiencing trauma <laughs> in one way or another, as I believe all humans do, right? Regardless of what your trauma was, your trauma is just different than mine. Um, everybody's doing the best they can with what they know how to do. I'm not trying to, um, you know, 
bag on anybody's childhood or, or the people who participated in mine. What I do want you to know is that the journey gets better with more and more awareness. And the ability for you to reprogram that inner voice and find a way to use the, the contracted emotions as pointers versus as um, experiences that cause us to you know go in the downward spiral of despair, um, that's up to you. I don't really have the, the ability to um, guide you on that one. I can tell you some things that I have done, but I don't think that the things that I have done will help everyone. I think they might help some of you, but I do tons of um, study around human psychology and horse psychology and um, how the brain works, how the nervous system works, all that stuff. And that works for me, but it may or may not work for you. So my, my um, encouragement to you horse lovers is to discover what your pain is, right? And look for ways to heal it. And I haven't found any magical button. There's never been like one, ta-da, everything's all better. I certainly have not experienced that at all. I have all kinds of, um, you know, human behavior that I would like to modify. But um, one day at a time, right? 1% at a time. But here's some things to consider. Um, your health affects it a lot. So if you're not eating well, if you're not getting exercise or fresh air, you need sunlight. Humans need sunlight, guys. You got to get outside, okay? The more time you can spend in, around, or near natural things, horses, dogs, cats, trees, dirt, all of that can help influence that. But you also need to identify your triggers and have ways to um, not stop the trigger. Don't fight the trigger. That makes it worse. But I'd be be able to identify your triggers and be with them in such a way that allows them to pass quicker and quicker. Okay, so that's the best advice I can give you for right now, guys. But be be advised that it has been my experience over the last forty years that your frequency matters. It influences your horse's ability to to perceive you as a partner, regardless of how you use pressure or not regardless of what method you follow, regardless of what your philosophies are on horse training, to me, the most important horsemanship tool you can develop is deliberateness around your mind, body, and spirit, all right? Use those things in a way that is on purpose instead of just allowing default settings that were were generated by someone else, right, to dictate your results, all right? Be responsible for those things and allow that journey to help you live your best horse life. And, you know, of course, um, lots of other relationships, all relationships are gonna benefit from that. So there's my two cents for today, guys. If you enjoyed what I had to say today, I would consider it a close personal favor. If you would like, rate, review, share, comment on whatever platform you're using my podcast or listening to my podcast on, share it on all your social media platforms, um, you know, sing it high and wide. I would, I would really love to grow my audience and have um, these sort of interactions be more and more impactful. So thank you so much for taking the time. I know today's podcast is a little longer than what I normally do, but I hope you found it helpful. I'd love to hear from you. Reach out to me anytime you want. I, you can email me at coach at thecoachchristy.com 
Um, I'd love to help you with your horsemanship. Take care. Have a great day. Bye.